Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast and this is the last podcast of 2014 so many thanks for all your listening this year. We have a double issue out covering the Christmas and New Year period so you'll hear from us again in January 2015 but for the last podcast of the year once again we're going to focus on our Wackley Prize essay this annual event where we invite doctors and healthcare professionals to write in with their experiences of health and medicine. They're shortlisted by our colleagues in turn and our winner is Joanna Rizel, who has written this fantastic essay called On Seeing Roses. Without further ado, from all at The Lancet, wishing you health and happiness, season's greetings. I hope you're not getting a cold like I am. And take it away, Joanna. Hi, my name is Joanna Rizel. I am a surgical resident at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, United States. I'm also a Paul Farmer Global Surgery Research Fellow in the program of uh, Global Surgery and Social Change. On Seeing Roses. A year ago, I met my neighbor, Gary, while he was in sudden cardiac arrest. Despite living on the same hallway for three years, we had never noticed one another. Our introduction that day began with a rather unconventional handshake, the jarring compressions of the heels of my hands against his sternum. I met his wife, Rose, that day, too. She stood barefoot on the cold cement outside of our building and watched in horror. With each compression of Gary's chest, one and two and three and Rose screamed protests, no, no, no. The setting was hardly ordained for neighborly relations. After six minutes of cardiac arrest and four minutes of CPR, the emergency medical services arrived with a defibrillator that shocked Gary's heart back to life. He was quickly sent to the hospital across the street where he was cooled for 48 hours to decrease the metabolic demands left on his body from his heart's hiatus. This left us all with the chilling uncertainty of what he might be like when he woke up. I was scheduled to be on call in the same hospital that night and debated whether visiting Gary and Rose would be an invasion of their privacy. I had already rifled through their apartment to find a pair of shoes for Rose, who had climbed into the ambulance in her pink pajamas and bare feet, but still, I hesitated. Somehow visiting them in the hospital seemed like a disregard of patient privacy. Nevertheless, I decided I would rather apologize for my empathy than for my apathy. That night in the cardiac intensive care unit, a loose yet intense relationship formed between two neighbors. Sitting by the foot of Gary's hospital bed, Rose and I met for the first time that she could remember. I retold the day's events as none of them were clear to her anymore. After there was nothing left to recount, the whirring rasps of Gary's ventilator filled the medicated air between us, pronouncing our unfamiliarity with each other. We hugged and said goodbye. Against most published and anecdotal evidence, Gary woke up two days later with all of his faculties intact. After an automatic implantable cardioverter defibrillator was placed, he was discharged home with the only external evidence of his ordeal, the card deck-sized lump beneath his skin where the device sat. In the weeks that followed, I seemed to run into Gary and Rose more than I had ever noticed before. Every time I saw Rose in the hallway of our apartment building, she would throw her arms around me thanking me for what I had done. As she pulled away, she would hold my shoulders and promise me that this would be the last time she greeted me in such a way. Eventually, her promises held true, but the length of our chance encounters never shortened. Now when we meet over laundry or hurried exits from the building, we pause and talk about the important events in our lives. Not the mundane errands we need to run or the deadlines we need to meet, 
but rather, Gary had his retirement party this weekend, or our doctor said we are cleared to travel. I've noticed how Rose's adoration for Gary pulses through her. Her reality of nearly losing him is apparent in the way she talks, breathes, sees. Her gratitude for still having her partner is equally clear each time we talk. Running into Rose, once awkward and uncertain, is now restorative and heartening. In many ways, Rose and her husband have been as therapeutic to me as I ever was to them. Before the day of Gary's arrest, I saw home as my place away from work, a refuge from stress, obligations, and medicine. I never imagined that I would be called to use my medical knowledge in this safe haven, and I was grateful for that. As a fourth-year surgical resident, I was burnt out, wondering why I'd ever committed myself to such a grueling, unrewarding, and debilitating life. Despite countless hours in the hospital, young surgical residents, mired by constant pages, orders, and paperwork, often spend more time switching from one service to another than they do accruing patients to follow from diagnosis to recovery. This pattern can leave them deprived of the rewards of their own profession. Somehow still, in the last place I expected or wanted to find it, Gary and Rose resurrected my interest in patient care. A few months after Gary's cardiac arrest, Rose suffered her own cardiac event, Takotsubu's cardiomyopathy, the aptly named stress-induced broken heart syndrome. One day, after meeting in the basement laundry room, she told me about her experiences with the nurses and doctors in the emergency room at the hospital where I worked, the same hospital that had treated Gary. She shared some of her most private thoughts from the time she was rushed to the catheter lab, telling Gary she loved him as if she would never have the chance to do it again. She told me what it felt like to be a patient in that setting. Although I had always thought that the glorification of a doctor's privilege to patients' private lives was trite, I finally understood why this was so significant. What started as a basic medical intervention has grown roots into a deeper foundation. Rose and I have come to know each other well. No explanations are needed for paths unknown to one another. We're content to learn and share as we go. We don't plan to get together, but each time our trajectories collide, our routines and obligations subside. We pause. We remember that day. I should not have been home from work, but I was. Another neighbor should not have heard 7A instead of 7H, leading her to knock on my door instead of Rose's when Gary collapsed. But she did. After six minutes of cardiac arrest, Gary should not be alive, but he is. As these recollections filter through our subconscious, we start to talk. That is our relationship. I seem to remind Rose of how thankful she is for Gary's life, and she reminds me of how fortunate I am to be a doctor who is able to contribute to their existence together. Gary and Rose are not my patients, but sometimes I feel as if I am their doctor. My experience with them has given new meaning to the term neighborly. If a neighbor is someone who is near or next to us, aren't the patients with whom we work also our neighbors? Don't they form a part of our community? Many doctors before me have discussed the notion of accompaniment in medicine, both its presence and its absence. This idea describes a physician's responsibility to help guide patients through their health experiences in a mutually accepted partnership. It implies a sense of community between the doctor and the patient. Yet in many practices, this principle is rarely espoused. However, would this change if all patients were treated as if they were our neighbors, as if they were close to us, both in location and commonality, as if they were one of us, 
a part of our communities? What if I treated every patient as if he or she were a Gary or a Rose? As doctors, we are meant to treat and protect our patients, but somewhere in between the 30-hour call schedules, the concerns for malpractice, and the insidious amounts of new work and knowledge to acquire, we shift instead to protect ourselves. We steal our minds to empathy and divorce ourselves from connectivity. We disassociate from the people below the sterile drapes to shield ourselves from the reality of what is at stake. Personal recovery is so much easier if we do not know what our patients lost when we lost them on the table. However, when we see the roses of our lives, we are forced to recognize that patients are not discrete entities. They are not peripheral vascular disease or acute cholecystitis or chronic pancreatitis. They are individuals whose existence is often intricately woven into the lives of others. The difference between their living and dying could mean the difference of their loved ones surviving. In this sense, can such neighborly behavior extend beyond our patients to reach our colleagues as well? The nursing staff, the operating room stock team, the receptionists, the pharmacists, the people we work next to and with for 80 hours a week are all pieces of our communities. With this recognition, when we run into these people in the hall, perhaps it will no longer be a hurried exchange of glances, but instead a more meaningful encounter. With such a shift, our places of work might evolve from being places we are eager to escape from to places we are eager to return to. Rose reminds me of this possibility. She reminds me of what I do and why I do it. However, she is not an exception. People like Rose are around us every day. It is not a matter of needing some collision of fates and fortune to make them important. It is a matter of looking up and actually seeing the roses. Now I try to do this in my daily practice. After all, we will never know who our neighbors are unless we look for them. All names have been changed out of respect for patient privacy. Thanks for listening to the Lancet Podcast. This has been an audio version of the Wackley Prize essay, Unseeing Roses, written and read by Joanna Rizell.